So I want to be clear up front. Romans 5, 1 through 5 is going to be our banner text for all of the season of Advent, but it's not going to be our text specifically for today. Um, Advent is a season where we stop the four weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we say, let's put ourselves into two postures. The first posture is to think what it's like, going back to the story of Exodus, uh, what was it like for the people of God to long for the coming Messiah? Now, we know the coming Messiah, as we hold to the New Testament, in Jesus Christ, but the people of God longs for him to come, right? And so there's this longing, this waiting for him to arrive. We, on the other side of it, are doing something very similar. We've seen and know that Jesus Christ has come, and now we're waiting for, we're longing for his second arrival. And that's the, the idea behind Advent. We want to put our mind in that posture to think, what was the world like before Jesus came? And even after Jesus came, what do we hope to see when he returns again? And so the season of Advent is waiting for that. So the birth of Jesus on Christmas is to go, okay, what, what do we do? How do we think? What would that have been like? And get our mind around that. To do that, historically, the church has looked at four different things during this season. Uh, uh, hope, peace, joy, and love. And so we're going to look at those four things and kind of line up with history to do it. Today, covering the idea of hope. Now, Romans 5, 1 through 5 is our kind of banner text to go through this stuff. Because if you can, again, look at Romans 5, 1 through 5. I want you to see this. The declarations, the declaration of Romans 5, 1 through 5. Uh, is, is pretty uh, close to what we're trying to cover in Advent. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the first one. Through Jesus Christ, we have peace. Okay, we're going to come back to that idea. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. We'll talk about joy and hope of the glory of God. So this declaration, we have these things because of Jesus Christ. The next part of what these verses do, it takes hope specifically, but I would argue you could do this with joy or peace as well. What happens is um, he uses suffering to say suffering helps us understand in greater ways hope as it produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, okay? And that idea is important because the banner for our Advent season, the idea is going to be hope amidst a world that doesn't have hope. The Bible's going to make that declaration, peace amidst a world that doesn't have peace, joy amidst a world that doesn't have peace, love amidst a world that doesn't have love. Now, all four of those things, the world would say they do have them, but the Bible's declaring that it doesn't have them. And so we have to begin to deconstruct that. So this season, we want to set and go, okay, we're here. Let's talk through these ideas. As a matter of fact, you might've got one when you came in. If you didn't, they're also at the, the connect desk. If you have kids, if you're a parent in the room, we have these children's kits, these advent kits to kind of help train and teach your kids kids to go through that. Also, we have this prayer guide that might be helpful. Some of you guys might have Advent devotionals, and that's totally fine, but uh, this guide might be helpful if you want to use it. I don't know. You'll see a a link for it, or you can look on our website. There'll be a link for this prayer guide during this season as well. So anyway, with that being said, um, let's dive into hope, okay? And for us to do this, here's where I want to start. The Bible declaring a lot of things about hope. The first acknowledgement before we can ever even get into it and what the Bible is going to push us towards, because we're going to use Psalm 42 here in a second, is an acknowledgement that we need hope. Meaning, um, if you look at the world around us, there has to be a recognition, at least on some level. And as Americans, at this period in time, we're on the right side of comfort, if we can just acknowledge that. But we also recognize there's still very much anxiety, depression, loss, I mean, failure, just think some of you feel like you're not a good enough parent. 
Some of you feel like you're not a good enough uh, student, good enough worker, whatever it is. You have failed in some way. Uh, there's oh, well over a million, hundreds of millions of people who will not have a place to stay tonight in this world, some of which will starve to death, some of which will thirst uh, to death, some of which, uh, in being dehydrated and hungry, are there because they're, they're in, in sex trafficking. The world is broken. It's a mess, and at times I just I hate it. I hate it. I hate the way it is. I hate that we have to live in fear. I, I hate it. It's just, it's there. And, and, and to acknowledge that means there has to be something that we desire beyond all of that. Right? I, I don't hope to marry my wife, Candace, because I've already married her. I already have, have uh, uh, accomplished that. Well, let's, yeah, let's use that language. I've already, I've already got that. Okay, no. Um, okay. I've already done that, so I don't hope, I mean, I really hope to marry Candace one day. I have it. To say we need hope is to acknowledge that we need it, that something's wrong. We're longing for something beyond that. And when we can sit and posture ourselves in that, we can go, okay, so, so where do we get it? How, how do we get it? Why do we need it? What's beyond that? What fixes it? Now, because the world's broken, here's what I want to put in front of you. I think we do two things that are unfortunate. Because the world's broken and we want hope, um, the good thing and the natural human thing is to, to do is to look for these moments of relief, these positive moments. I mean, and honestly, just existing, I mean, again, we have fairly good lives as Americans, but the reality is just existing, we're always looking for positive moments. So um, I've shared with you guys before on Sundays, I always fast until I'm done with the second sermon uh, on Sunday. Then I go steal snacks from the children's ministry. Um, but I'm going to go home today, right? I get up at 5.45 on Sundays, so I don't eat, and I'm hu- hungry and tired, so I'm going to go home. Uh, I'm going to wash the gel out of my hair. I'm going to change into basketball shorts. I'm going to get a sandwich, probably some uh, sun chips on my plate. I'm going to watch football for an hour, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring my plate over, and I'm going to sit in my recliner, and I'm going to go, yes, and it's just going to feel so good. I'm going to watch football for an hour, and then I'm going to go in the room. I'm going to put my uh, phone on Do Not Disturb. I'm going to put the fan sound on, and I'm going to sleep for two hours. And if you try to call me, I won't answer. Uh, And if you try to call my wife to get a hold of me, she ain't waking me up, okay? Two hours there, and I love it. I couldn't do that. If you ask me, come over to my house and you, no, I've got my place. I've got my seat. I, this is where, this is where I love to be. It's a moment of relief. It's good, right? I like it. Those are good things. I, sometimes during this Christmas season, I feel like I'm the Grinch pastor. Like you need to not love those gifts. Like, listen, enjoy the Fitbit. It's great. All I'm saying is amidst the world of brokenness, how do we acknowledge where our true hope lies? And so there are moments of relief, but because that's not all the time, what I worry about is I see us as believers doing two things. Number one, we despise all the negative. Romans 5 tells us not to do that. We despise all the things that are um, irritations in our life, all the, the suffering that goes on. And yet Romans 5 tells us not to do that. The second thing that we do because we want those moments of relief in the recliner is we settle for hollow moments, for synthetic versions of hope peace, joy, and love. Because we want moments of reprieve from the brokenness around us, we settle for these trite uh, things that ultimately don't fulfill. And so what I want to do is I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 42, verse 11. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 11. We've covered this psalm before. And as you do, um, I want to bring this idea uh, really to the forefront of our minds because this this, uh, chapter in Psalm 42, which is our text uh, for this morning, is going to get at this idea. 
Okay, it's going to really get at this idea. Now, in looking at the two things that I was talking about, because that's true, because we tend to um, uh, despise all the negative or go for the trite things, what we don't do is that inebriates us enough to dig in and find real hope. Do you understand? Because we don't want any negative or because we just want to pacify where we are right now, we don't learn to dig in and find real hope. So a great example of this is last month, uh, I bought my uh, youngest daughter, Anna. She's three. We bought her a little plant at Home Depot, a tiny little $3 one. And uh, on Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, we're kind of setting up and all that. And she looks at her plant. She goes, Daddy, it's broken. It's broken. My plant is broken, right? Like, you don't know what you're talking about. So I come over here and I look at her plant. It's dead. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty broken. Um, but here's, here's the thing. Here's what Anna's doing. Um, as she says it's broken, it doesn't work. It's broken. She's looking at... So we have tons of gardens and fruit trees in our house. We don't have a lot of property. So we just like pack them all in there, right? She looks at it. She sees peaches growing on the peach tree. She sees all the citrus. She sees uh, uh, cauliflower growing. And she sees our grapevines. And she sees all this stuff. And she looks at dad's stuff. And she goes, yours isn't broken. It's growing. But like my, my plant's broken. What she doesn't see is how much I've had to prune or how much I've had to water, how much I've had to feed, how much I've lost my mind in trying to set up certain timers for water, uh, watering systems over and over, all these things, all this hard work. Listen, Anna has everything she needs to make her plant grow there. But there's two things. She either doesn't know how or she's just too lazy. Probably for Anna's case, it's both, okay? And what I'm trying to say is it's all there to make it work. This is, this is what I would hope to, I think for some of us as believers, we see hope and we go, but it's broken. Like we see the world and we go, but that seems better at times. And I want to argue this morning, it's not. You think that this whole Christian thing is broken, but we're not willing to put the hard work in. And though hope is a gift from God, it's something that is to be worked for, worked for. As a matter of fact, I think John Piper said it really well. Let me read this before we dive into Psalm 42. He says this, hoping in God does not come naturally for us. We must preach it to ourselves and preach it diligently and forcefully, or we will give way to a downcast and disquieted spirit. This is evidently not well known among all the saints. Here is Psalm 42, verse 11, that we're going to work to. Then we're going to work through this Psalm. This is where it starts. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. So Psalm 42 um, is uh, a pretty well-known psalm. We covered it about three years ago uh, when we covered the psalms in, uh, over the summer, I think in 2016. A guy named Richard Sibbs, who's an old Puritan, wrote a 175-page book on just the two verses of Psalm 42, verses 5 and 11. He was called the Sweet Dropper. The name of the book, if you ever want to look it up, uh, I've read about half of it. I feel like it's uh, pretty helpful. It's called The Soul's Conflict Within Itself. And it's the idea that as you read Psalm 42, what you find is someone acknowledging the reality around them. That suffering is what it is. Or just the day-to-day is what it is. Yet at the same time, though I know the reality is true, I also know the reality of who God is true. And, and what Psalm 42 is, it meets these two things as they collide. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. The context of this is pretty interesting. It's written by the sons of Korah. You can probably see that at the top. If you don't know who Korah is, Korah was a man, if you read First uh, Chronicles, he was a man who chose to rebel against Moses and his leadership. 
crazy story. Moses essentially draws a line in the sand. It says, if you're with Korah, be with Korah. But if you're going to follow the Lord, God has asked me to lead. He's just asked me, it is what it is. So come on this side. The people who line up with Korah, God, God causes an earthquake to happen, opens the earth and swallows Korah and all of his men. Okay. You're like, I'm with Moses, right? Okay. Well, all of Korah's sons do that. They go, our dad was wrong. Let's go with Moses, right? And they end up becoming priests, and they end up writing this psalm. You'll see at the, the top of the psalm there, you're going to see this uh, term that you might not be familiar with. It's uh, masculine. It's the best way we can articulate what this term is. It's instruction through song. Like a great example of this is our ABCs. We A, B, C, D. Like it's the same tone as uh, twinkle, twinkle, right? We take something. We want to instruct our children in that idea. This is what Psalm 42 is doing. In song version, it's teaching us something. And so we want to get at what it's teaching us, okay? So with that being said, let's go through this. I'll start in verse 1. But again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking this psalm just for the sake of time. I want to really uh, get at and unearth verse 11 and what we're supposed to do with it. So this is what it says in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Here's the first statement. Just listen to that. Think of a deer who's so thirsty, trying to get to the watering hole or this stream, this uh, babbling brook or whatever it is, and they're trying to get to this, deer, the, the, to this water, and it's thirsty. This is, his declaration is, I long for God the way that that deer longs for water. My tears have been my food day and nights while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude, uh, uh, multitude keeping festival. Listen to the back and forth, even in those two verses, like I'm drinking my tears. I'm crying so much. I'm in such a bad place, but at the same time, I can recall when days were better. Right, And so I hope even as believers, we can look back and we go, I, I remember as, uh, what, what the Lord has, has done. And he keeps that same idea in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. The only declaration that we find in this psalm, both in verse 5 here and then again in verse 11. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My God is uh, cast down. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan. Uh, and of Hermon, and of Mount Mizar. I'm not going to unpack what these three things are. I packed them when we went through Psalm 42. You can go back and look at that. But his idea is this. Here I am. Uh, I feel like the way I'm looking at the world and what I'm experiencing is so bad that he's crying so much. If you've ever been to a place of complete and utter loss, you're just tears you're just rolling into your mouth. You're just so lost. You're blubbering. You're just all, it's just a mess. Even though that's true, he remembers what God has done. He remembers past victories. I know this is true now, but I also know God, who you are again, as believers. If you're not a believer in here, it is what it is. But if you're a believer in here, my hope would be that you would go, no, I, I know what that's like. I know God was true here, even though I feel like he's not. This is the idea of what the song's getting into in this lament. Verse seven, deep calls to deep at the roaring of your waterfalls, all the breakers and your waves have gone over me. I love how A.W. Tozer breaks this down in the pursuit of God. The depths speak to the depths. This idea is that even though it's true, there's something deeper within me that God continues to speak to amidst this suffering. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to God of my life. A prayer, a prayer to the God of my life. Verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. 
while they say to me all the, all the day long, where is your God? I mean, it's not just a matter of um, him feeling the oppression around him of the, the, not just the grind of the world, but the suffering they're going through. But more than that, there's something in the back of um, all the people's minds that I think we can resonate with. God, where are you? God, where are you? Which is interesting because look at verse 11. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my hope. With this mixed ending, there's a few things that I want to observe here that uh, I, I think unpack where we're trying to go in getting behind hope. The first thing is notice that the psalmist here um, just puts on the table the real suffering. Doesn't try to go around it, but just acknowledges it. Like, can I just be straight? Some of us in the room, I think, need to go to counseling to realize you need to go to counseling. Like there's some of you in the room who want to not even think about the depths and the issues that maybe you grew up with. And I'm not trying to get into the inner child stuff beyond all of that. Even just looking at what's going on in the, around the world, you, you, you turn on the TV and you miss the hundreds of thousands of people that are dying because you don't even want to think about it. So there's an acknowledgement. The world is broken. Your neighborhood is broken. Your family is broken. You are broken. It just is. It just is. Because of Psalm 3, there's always going to be good, and there's always going to be a mixed version of bad in that. And it's a blending, and it's not always easy. So he doesn't try to run from that idea. He acknowledges it. But notice the second thing. In acknowledging the brokenness, nowhere in the psalm does he ever ask to get out of it. Nowhere in the psalm does he ever go, God, uh, this is going, get me out of here. There's an acknowledgement of the brokenness, but more than wanting to get out of the brokenness, the question that's on the table is this, God, where are you in it? Where are you in it? Because here's what I'm telling my soul. My soul feels downcast, but I'm telling my soul, God's in it. But God, where are you in it? I mean, there's an acknowledgement here that I want God more than I just want the removal of my suffering. This is why Romans 5 is helpful to guide us in this time. But the last thing I want us to see here is I think the psalmist does something that we probably should pick up on when it comes to understanding hope and suffering. It's the idea that we need to be talking more to ourselves than listening to ourselves. Love what Keller says in The Meaning of Marriage. He says, feelings are always true, but that doesn't mean they're always right. And so, so you, you, you feel this and you begin to allow you to convince you. Instead of allowing scripture to wash over you and tell you what's true and go, no, 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 hope in God. But I don't feel it. I know. Hope in God. But everyone's sailing. I'm down. Hope in God. Yeah, but it's this. Hope in God. When there's nothing left, tell your soul, hope in God. Which raises the question, why in God? Why amidst the suffering? Why would, we, why would I stand up here? Why would we gather on a Sunday? If you're not a believer in the room, why would you come here with your friend? Whatever it is. Why, for Psalm 42, is the declaration to hope in God? There's something there. Now, here's where I stop. That's Psalm 42. I now want to bring up this argument and tie these things together. Hopefully, you can start to see all these strings uh, begin to attach. But here's, here would be my argument. If you'd ever pick up the Bible, you're going to notice that the Bible assumes something that I don't think your friend who's not a believer, or if you're in this room, not a believer would assume. The Bible assumes you have no hope. You have no hope. 
As a, as a matter of fact, um, if you want to actually, let me go back. I can't even read it. In Romans 5, listen to this. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope. In Romans 15, 13, uh, he's called the God of hope. As a matter of fact, Paul starts Thessalonians and I believe Titus, both with Jesus, our hope. The Bible starts with an assumption, and it's this. Without Jesus Christ, you have no hope. But what's interesting about that is if you ask your non-believing friend, or if you're in this room and you're not a believer, if I was to ask you, do you have hope? You're going to come to two conclusions. Number one, this might be an oversimplification, but number one, you're going to say yes, and you're going to name something else besides Jesus. Or number two, you're going to say no, and you're going to go, honestly, I don't really need it. And if I could be honest, just a side note for a second, for the most part, if you're in here and you're American or your friend, they grew up in the Western world, the reality is uh, the Western world has tended to not really sit very long uh, with their own thoughts to think deeply enough about hope in general. So honestly, probably um, there would be an acknowledgement, at least on our part, we have so much stuff that we don't have to think about hope, meaning um, if, if I'm delusional and think that I've married my wife, Candace, well, then I'm never going to actually marry her. No, no, I'm already married to her. And she's going, we're not married, right? I would be crazy. No, 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 I'm married to Candace. This whole time, 13 years, I've just been crazy. She's just going along with the ride, right? That, that would be, but, but and my point is this, that, that the world would go, I, no, I don't, we're fine. We're fine. The problem is we have too much stuff. We have too much of the wrong stuff to think that we need hope. But, but if you could get someone to sit down long enough, if you in this room are not a believer, if you could sit down with your own thoughts, no AirPods in, no TV on, no radio, nothing, just sit there. And I ask you the question, do you have hope? I would almost guarantee you would come to two conclusions. Yes, and you would name something that is not Jesus, or no, and you would say, because I don't need it. And here's what I want to tell you. I would argue both of those things will fail you. Both of those things will fail you. Unfortunately, it will be too late. And this is true for my next door neighbor. This is true for um, friends growing up that they have something that they think will um, get them there. Like the American, it's going to be better. It's going to be better. It's going to be better. And what they're going to find somewhere in their life that this thing that has uh, drawn them along over and over, but they're going to come to the end and they're going to go, this thing is empty. It's empty. It's hollow. Or, no, I don't need hope. I'm good. Why would I need hope? They're going to come and they're going to stand before Jesus on judgment day. And so to my original question, why hope in God? Why would the psalmist demand that his soul hope in God? Because I think what Jesus gives us, not just being born in a manger, but living a life that we could never live and dying a death that we should have died. In doing this, he gives us a hope in two ways that no other hope can give us. He gives us a hope for the future, and he gives us a hope right now. So if you can, open your Bible to, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this is where we will start to wind down. Now, as you're opening your Bible there, here's what I want to say. Um, there is something amidst Psalm 42 and Romans 5 uh, that helps acknowledge what is, and this is just an apologetic, but helps us acknowledge what is the right hope. Okay, because your neighbor could say, no, 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 I have hope. Who's to say your hope is better, which I'm going to try to unpack why Jesus is better. But, but more than that, there is something that could prove it. It doesn't just have to be ethereal. 
Meaning there's something we could put on the table that tests all hopes. That tests our hope, the not believing hope, the saying I don't need hope, the saying I have it. It could test all hopes. And it's what Romans 5 and Psalm 42 have at their core. It's suffering. Suffering microwaves all of these different worldviews and says, okay, you have a hope. Well, let, let's see if this hope's real. And when you go through it, do you completely just lose your mind and become dismantled? Because what we understand about Jesus and the hope that he gives, that shouldn't be the case. I mean, if we're being honest, like if that's not true, then we need to question whether or not we really need to follow Jesus. Because this is one of his claims. And if there's a hope that outlasts or is stronger than that hope, then we should ask questions about that hope. But what suffering does completely removes any security false hopes have. But in 1 Corinthians 15, let me remind you something, believers in the room. Let me remind you of something that is true for your eternity. And that suffering could test. Let me remind you of something that is true for you right now. That suffering can absolutely test. But it's something that you forget. It's a hope that you have that maybe you got when you were a believer and now you've kind of moved on or whatever it is. But let's go back to that Christianity 101. Something that you know that you know that you know is true. Listen to this good news from the New Living Translation in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 51 says this, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. Yes! And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is this, the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. So let's stop real quick. This is crazy, right? Here's the reality. Um, When I do a funeral for someone who's not a believer, everyone is feeling that sting. It's very real. When I do a funeral for everyone who's a a believer, everyone's still feeling the sting of death. That's still very real. But what is there? There's something there. There's hope. There's something there. There's this seed amidst that sting that goes, just like 1 Corinthians 15 is saying, but one day. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know I can't see them right now, but one day. You can't say that about the non-believer. Believers, do you hear that? You always will have, but one day. You'll always have that. You'll always, your non-believer does not have that. If you're in this room and you do not follow Jesus Christ, you don't have that. Believers, be encouraged. One day, the broken downness of your body, the fragility of the world, how everything continues to never be quite right, it won't always be like that. One day. One day. The hope in Jesus Christ provides us a hope of eternity. One day. One day it's going to happen. We believe this, but we're not done. Look at this, but thanks be to God. He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just one day. You ready? Verse 58. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Listen to the two parts of that last verse. 
Number one, our hope makes us immovable. So let the suffering come. You know what the believer says to suffering? God, where are you in it? Where are you in it? How does this bring you glory? I I want out of it. I want this cup to pass, but I want my life to be more about you than it is about me. Where are you in it? Tell me where to go. Because what that does is that produces faith. It produces character. It produces endurance. It gives me hope. Where are you in it? I'm immovable. Let it come. I don't care. I'm not going anywhere. That's a real hope. Real hope says you're not going anywhere. But listen to the other, other side of this. It's not vanity. This is good news for you as believers. Your life is not pointless. That's crazy. You get to work for something that's bigger than yourself. Every time you stock that shelf, every time you change that oil, every time you discipline your child, every time, every time, every time, you're doing something for someone else that's bigger than you. No non-believer can claim that. Hear me, if you're not a believer in here, you know what the faith in Jesus Christ it gives you? It gives you freedom from self. It frees you from trying to make your own story grandiose. But now you can be firm and not live in vanity. But hear me, suffering's coming. And my prayer is that we would, we would embrace it in such a way that we would ask, where is God in it? So um, my man Spurgeon, I think obviously is the best way probably to, to, for us to finish. As he says this, hope itself is like a star, not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity and only to be discovered in the night of adversity. So um, I said I was going to finish, but I keep thinking of really cool things to say. Um, So here is where I will finish. Um, uh, In the early part of the first and second century, uh, Christians were just blasted, right? I mean, and I mean this, like, not only blasted, like figuratively, like quite literally just murdered. I mean, chopped up into pieces, thrown to the lions, buried alive. I mean, just killed over and over tens of thousands of them. And what the Jews had at that time, um, as they longed for the Messiah, they would always pray for Shalom. And when they would greet each other, they would say Shalom, Shalom, which we've talked about Shalom. It's more than just peace. It's, we want the world to be made right again. We're longing for this day. But as believers were going through this, they used a different Aramaic word. And this Aramaic word became encouragement to them because they didn't just want out of their sufferings. As a matter of fact, our brothers and sisters who have died by the sword or the mouths of lions actually many moments went towards the sword. Said, no, if you're going to kill me for following Jesus, kill me. Okay? And what they found as they lost their brothers, their sisters, their husbands, their wives, their children, their parents, what they found was this idea of going, Lord, Please return. Suffering is very invasive. It's all around us. People are dying, but we want you to return. And the Aramaic word they used was Maranatha. They would go and they would greet each other, not with Shalom, but they would say Maranatha. They would pray Maranatha. And at its core, this Aramaic word means Lord Jesus, come. It's what we're praying during our season of Advent. Maranatha. Maranatha, I want you. I have a hope in you amidst all that is going on. My prayer would be, that would be our prayer. So let's pray. Father, we would be foolish to not start with Maranatha. Jesus, we ask that you would come back. It is frustrating that you have not already returned with all of the terrible things that are even going on in this moment. I don't understand it. We don't understand it. We do not have the full scope. 
It's confusing why you would allow these things to take place. It's confusing why knowing you could come back right now and the world be made well and you haven't, that's frustrating. And so that's true in our own personal lives as individuals and our families' lives. As we look around at our city, as we look around at our state, as we look around at our country, as we look around at the world, we see all this brokenness and we're just crying, Lord, we don't know. We don't know the answer. We don't, we, we don't have anything in of ourselves. but we look to you and we say, Jesus, please return. We long for your return. And in this season, that's where we're turning our hearts. We cry, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come, please, please come back. Father, I pray that a hope that we say as believers would be very tangible to anyone who is not. I pray that we would be steadfast and immovable, knowing that our eternity is secure and that currently we can live with a hope that nobody else has. Be with us. We love you in Jesus' name.